Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 2, The Chess Master. The era following the Congress of Vienna was supposed to be one where stability and peace would be the new order in Europe. Slowly but surely, the pieces which had been shattered by Napoleon's conquest were being reassembled, and the statesmen who had called the shots in Vienna could feel pretty good about themselves. With power now firmly back in the hands of the responsible aristocracy, there would be nothing to fear from those pesky radicals seeking to overthrow and crash the whole party. The clock had been turned back predating the French Revolution, and the aristocracy's near-death experience during the Napoleonic Wars was enough for leaders to notice that they had to clamp down and show the rest of the world who the masters of Europe really were. As the boundaries were being redrawn at Vienna, millions of people now found themselves under foreign occupation. Germans, Serbians, Italians, Poles, Croatians, Hungarians, all woke up to the news that they are now subjects of the Prussian Kaisers, Habsburgs of Austria, or Russian Tsars. On the ground level, it was a confusing time for the poor working masses. I mean, just a few years prior, the bells of revolution were ringing loudly in the ears of millions. And to hear that after all that, you were simply carved out and placed under a foreign occupation, well, I could see how that would upset a few people. Among the nasty side effects of post-Vienna Europe was that with so many people now coming under their administration, the leading states cannot simply sit back and do nothing. If the new balance of power were to be maintained, the monarchs would have to react quickly to stamp out any revolutionary fervor. It was one thing to say, I'm the boss now, so do as you're told, but as another thing entirely to show the people what awaited them if they stepped out of line. In order to solidify their grasp on power, government crackdowns on protests, political gatherings, and public opposition became paramount. The Austrian Empire led the way with the Carlsbad Decrees of 1819, which sought to eliminate any nationalist sentiments left over from Napoleon's conquests through new policies of government espionage and police oppression. In the German Confederation, there was sweeping legislation outlawing freedom of speech and political affiliation. Even the French, so recently having faced the axe at Vienna, were quick to jump into the fray and invaded Spain in 1823 after a liberal coup overthrew the Spanish crown. The old guard were showing they still had the strength to put a stranglehold on Europe, but as they would quickly discover, you cannot beat a population into submission forever. And by 1848, the tired, hungry, and oppressed people of Europe would show that they had had enough. 1848 would be a year like no one in Europe had experienced. Soon after ringing in the new year, revolts would flare up across the continent, covering west to east in a blanket of unrest and fury. Beginning in Sicily and reaching from Paris to Budapest, the sheer speed and velocity of the revolts had caught the aristocracy completely off guard, and governments were forced to choose between harsh police crackdowns or risk their own hold on power by giving in to revolutionary demands. For the next several months, Europe would be absorbed by this conflagration of unrest and anger, but the legacy of the revolts would not be what changes they brought or who they toppled, but how they had failed in achieving any substantial change. The revolts of 1848 puttered out just as quickly as they had started. Historians have commonly labeled this period as a turning point in history in which history failed to turn. They came with a massive bang, but went out with little more than a whimper, and when the dust had settled, no one was really sure just what had happened. Thousands lay dead in capital cities across the continent, but for the most part, 
the powers at the top remained at the top, and the revolutions had achieved only minimal success. There were some changes, however. Both Austria and Hungary abolished serfdom, while the French had yet again disposed their monarch in place of another. But overall, the European population would remain no better off than they had been previously. One area where the revolts did leave a lasting impression was within the German Confederation, which is where I want to focus our discussion today. The revolts which took place in the German Confederation would prove to be the beginning of its march towards unification by 1871 under Otto von Bismarck, which would significantly alter the balance of power in Europe. The Italians would be undergoing their own unification process at this time, but the events surrounding the formation of Germany weigh far heavier on the course of European politics to the eve of the First World War. Not to mention that Bismarck, the father of Germany, is an unrivaled titan in late 19th century politics, who simply cannot be passed over if we wish to understand the political atmosphere of Europe. I was not planning on setting aside the first two episodes as scene-setters, but here we are, and spending a little bit of extra time to get the necessary backstory is never a bad thing. You'll remember from the first episode that the German Confederation was composed of 38 independent states, which had been divided up and ruled jointly by Austria and Prussia, following the Congress of Vienna in 1815. The provinces, which included Hanover, Bavaria, and Saxony, were split between the two monarchies, with the larger share going to the Prussians, whose geographic domain now stretched from the city of Danzig to the French frontier. Although partners in government, the two kingdoms were always wary of each other, as both feared the other becoming the dominant power in Central Europe. During the revolts of 1848, which took place in Frankfurt, the Prussian Kaiser, Frederick William IV, found himself under siege. The Prussian king was facing increasing pressure from the opposition whose desire was to see the creation of a legislative assembly, which would give voice to the provincial governments within the imperial court. Frederick had limited options. He could order a police crackdown, threatening to further push the already tense situation, or give in to the opposition's demands. The Kaiser, though, saw a third option and one which was pretty remarkable for the time. The Kaiser switched sides. Not in a, okay, I'm tired, I'll give you what you want sort of way, but in a, yeah, I believe in your cause, I'd love to help sort of way. You see, like all members of the Hohenzollern bloodline, Frederick was a diehard conservative who believed in a divinely ordained aristocracy, and he was prepared to go to whatever lengths necessary in order to secure his dynasty and that included entertaining liberal ideas if the situation called for it. Frederick, hoping he did not play his hand too early, met with the leaders of the opposition, and the two sides agreed on the creation of a national assembly, which formally convened in Frankfurt in May of 1848. The purpose of the Frankfurt Assembly, as it was known, would be to act as a conduit between the Confederation's provincial governments and both the Austrian and Prussian heads of state. Its creation signaled that the provincial populations now had a representative in a nationally recognized body, and more importantly, a voice in the Kaiser's ear. When the Frankfurt Assembly met, it immediately began to discuss the question of a unified Germany. To the representatives at the Assembly, who none were from the working class, this seemed like a straightforward question. There were all Germans, after all, and even those Germans who lived under the rule of the Habsburgs in Austria a unified nation for them all to come home would be an enticing prospect indeed. It was a time where nationalism ran high, 
and a bringing together of German language and culture would only strengthen their position in Central Europe and be to everyone's benefit. So what would be the problem? The problem was, just where were these people going to come from? Indeed, there were already millions of German speakers in the area, but there were also hundreds of thousands of Poles, Dutch, Italians, and Slovenians living within the proposed border settlement. Would they be incorporated as well? And if so, what about the linguistic and cultural differences? How will that work? There were two options available. The first was a large Germany, which included all Germans, making up the Prussian and Austrian spheres. In this design, the Germans under Prussia would be folded up and placed under the direct rule of the Austrian emperor. The second option was for a small Germany, ruled by the Prussian Kaiser, which would exclude the Austrian Germans, but include the Italian, Dutch, Polish, and Slovenian-speaking populations instead. The debate over which was the better plan intensified, and the verbal jousting continued until March 1849, when the plan which called for the smaller Germany under the Kaiser's administration won out. With that out of the way, the only thing standing now for unification was to get the Kaiser to sign off on the whole thing. But Frederick, still in power, had other plans. The truth is, the Kaiser had always resented his capitulation back in 1849, and felt he had been bullied into making the call. He was a shifty politician, and although he had agreed to the opposition's demands, he had spent much of that next year plotting against this supposed slight. When the assembly presented Frederick with the crown in 1849, the Kaiser struck it down, claiming it was against his nature, and he would never accept, quote, a crown from the gutter. Frederick had his own plans for administration, and in none of those plans did the liberal Frankfurt Assembly come into the equation. To say this stunned the Assembly into silence would be an understatement. After a year of harsh negotiations, they had seen their work crumble with a single swipe of a hand. With no ratification in place, and no legitimization from the Kaiser, the plans for a unified Germany ground to a halt. Watching these developments with great interest were the Austrians. Throughout the meetings of the Frankfurt Assembly, the Habsburgs had been occupied with vicious revolts in Vienna, Budapest, and the Italian territories they had gained after 1815. But through the help of Russian intervention, they had been able to escape the upheaval by 1849. With those issues now dealt with, the newly crowned Habsburg Emperor, Franz Joseph, now had time to deal with his political partners. In 1850, Joseph threatened the Prussians with war if they did not immediately stop all that chatter about unification. Although the process had been stopped cold by 1849, there remained much support for the cause, support which would not simply vanish overnight. The Prussians, in no condition to engage in conflict, were forced to step back. The treaty, which became known as the Punctuation of Olmutz, named after the Czech city in which it was signed, was a bitter humiliation. The agreement called for the recreation of the German Confederation, but making the Austrians the dominant partner, while tearing down the amendments brought through by the Frankfurt Assembly. This slight, on behalf of the Austrians, would not be forgotten, and served to antagonize generations of Prussian statesmen. In particular, one who was watching from the sidelines, and will come to prominence not only to change the fortunes of Prussia, but all of Europe. Enter Otto von Bismarck. Born in 1815, Bismarck was from a long line of ultra-conservative Prussian elites. But despite his birth privileges, Bismarck understood his position in the world. Having entered politics just before the chaos of 1848, 
he had become well aware of the shifting political dynamics at play. While serving on the Prussian cabinet, he had seen firsthand the Austrian humiliation and recognized that Prussia could not survive if the conservatives and liberals were continually at each other's throats. A unification of the provinces would be good for both parties, but for different political ends. Bismarck's philosophy was three-pronged. First, create a unified German empire under Prussian leadership. Second, remove the Austrian empire from power in Central Europe, making Berlin, not Vienna, the nucleus of political power. And third, secure peace and stability for the country by any means necessary. Bismarck was also well aware of Germany's precarious geographic position, sandwiched between France and Austria. In Bismarck's calculations, it was these two countries which posed the most serious threat to unification. If he were to unify the provinces under the Prussian crown, it would have to come at the expense of both these nations. To achieve his vision, Bismarck would systematically antagonize and isolate the other powers in his march to gaining Prussian supremacy in Europe, through the practice of real politic, a Machiavellian approach where the ruthless advance of his country would come by any means at his disposal. After serving as ambassador to France and Russia, Bismarck returned home to become the minister of Prussia in 1862, and went to work right away. His first act was solving a quarrel between the Austrians and the Kaiser, now Wilhelm I, over the restructuring of the Prussian military. After that had been solved, he was quick to secure the Austrians into a temporary military agreement. The key word here is temporary, as the agreement was only designed for the purpose of invading the two northern duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, located on the eastern bank of the North Sea and stick out of Germany like an antenna. The two duchies became front-page news in both nations in 1863, when the king of Denmark declared that both belonged to the Danish domain. The Danish claim was seen as a direct violation of a previous agreement between the three states, and war was hastily declared on Denmark. Allied together, the Prussian and Austrian forces invaded in 1864, and within five days, the Danish king had surrendered the two duchies without much of a fight. Bismarck immediately went back to work and this is where the temporary part of the alliance comes into play. In the peace agreements, Bismarck ignited a crisis over how the two duchies would be administered. Since they were populated by German speakers, the Prussians argued that they should fall to them. The Austrians naturally resisted, claiming they should fall under the administration of both powers jointly. To help soothe any hurt feelings, Bismarck summoned the Austrian minister to a private meeting during the late summer of 1865, and convinced his counterpart that Prussia would receive Schleswig, while the Austrians would get Holstein. Now, this may sound respectable on paper, but it was in fact a geographic slight. Holstein was the more southern of the two territories, and was attached directly to the Prussian kingdom. In other words, Austria would have to pass through Prussian territory in order to occupy their new prize. And it does not take a political scientist to conclude how this might pose a problem. The fuming Austrians declared an injustice and requested that Vienna be brought in to re-examine the issue. But by doing this, Austria played directly into Bismarck's hand. After securing the neutrality of the Russians and French, Bismarck declared war on Austria in June of 1866. In the Austro-Prussian War, Prussian forces would easily sweep aside their poorly led opponents in a number of engagements culminating at their defeat at Kuningratz by July 3rd of that same year. The defeat was a double whammy for Austria. Bismarck dominated the peace talks, but 
The Prussian minister made it clear that he had no desire to see Austria destroyed or dismantled, only to remove it from blocking the eventual provincial unification. With its tail between its legs, Austria was forced to turn and address his laundry list of domestic issues, which had been brewing since 1848. The Italians, who were also unifying at this time, reclaimed Venice, which had lost to the Habsburgs at the Congress of Vienna. And within Vienna itself, imperial changes were soon on the horizon. In 1867, the Habsburg Emperor, Franz Joseph, was forced to give in to domestic demands from the Magyars, a minority group from Hungary who were forcefully pushing for better representation in Vienna. The Compromise of 1867 outlined that the constitutional makeup of the monarchy be altered. Joseph would remain emperor, but now the Austrians and Hungarians would both elect prime ministers and military chiefs of staff separately transforming the old Austrian Empire into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which would remain in place until its destruction during the First World War. Most significantly, however, the Austrian defeat had secured Bismarck's eastern flank. With the Austrian threat removed, Bismarck can now turn his attention to France in the west. The French, like the Austrians, had always been suspicious of German unification, as it would pose a threat to their own interests in Western Europe. The Germans and French had never been ideal neighbors, and the Germans had developed an even stronger distrust of their Western counterparts after the rise of Napoleon. By 1870, hostilities between the two powers would reignite, but this time over issues surrounding the succession of the Spanish crown. The prelude to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 plays out like a bad episode of Degrassi or Saved by the Bell. The Prussians supported a candidate who was a member of the Hohenzollern bloodline, the family of nobles who the Prussian Kaisers were selected from, while the Second Republic of France, under Napoleon's nephew, Louis-Napoleon III, supported another. Bismarck would be the middleman, and decided to play the two sides off. How he did this makes every history undergrad snicker with disbelief. Bismarck created a false report, which played up claims that the French ambassador and Prussian Kaiser had privately insulted one another and released the claim to the public. Newspapers ran it front page, and soon enough, both nations were ready for war. Yep, it was that easy. It was another one of Bismarck's trademark gambles. Since the defeat of Austria, he'd been having difficulties in securing the loyalty of the southern German provinces, led by Bavaria, into joining his cause for unification, and he hoped a victory over France would be enough to gain their support. Louis Napoleon III, on the other hand, had become increasingly unpopular with his people, and, of course saw victory against Prussia as a way of saving his weakened administration. Banking on the advice of his military advisors, Napoleon III declared war. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 would be the final step for German unification, and its aftermath would have a profound effect on French psyche up to the Great War of 1914. To this point, France had regained its position as a continental great power, with a premier military force. But in the face of battle-hardened Prussian troops, who for the first time in European warfare employed the use of trains and railways to deploy their troops, the French forces found themselves retreating at every turn. The Prussians had been prepping for war for years, and spent their time learning as much of their opponent's strengths and weaknesses as possible. From their spy rings, they knew everything from the size of army corps to countryside terrain. The French, on the other hand, were crippled with poor leadership and even worse intelligence services. Despite equipping their troops with superior firearms like the recently modified bolt-action rifle, 
Napoleon III's forces retreated again and again in the face of superior Prussian artillery, until they finally surrendered at Sedan in July of 1870. The swiftness of the French defeat had shocked observers all over the world, and peace terms imposed by Bismarck would be devastating for French morale. The Second Republic was hit with a staggering 5 billion franc war indemnity. Compare that to the 700 million back in 1815. And were forced to watch as Bismarck proclaimed the formation of the German Empire in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles in January of 1871. If that was not bad enough, Bismarck also carved out two territories of Alsace and Lorraine, located on France's most eastern frontier, and annexed them as part of the German Empire. Napoleon III was forced out of office, and a Third Republic was declared in his place, which would stand until Nazi occupation in June of 1940. In the aftermath of their defeat, the Third Republic would face crisis after crisis and change over presidents and prime ministers and chiefs of staff like a broken record until 1914. With the proclamation of the German Empire, Bismarck had successfully unified the old German Confederation into a singular nation-state. With his victory against the French, Bismarck had finally secured his western flank, and with the Austrians subdued in the east, there would be no powers in a position to make a challenge. Now, you might ask, what about the Russians and the British? Where do they sit in all this? Well, the Russians had an axe to grind with the Austrians ever since they had opted not to support Russian forces in the Crimean War of 1853-56. This lack of support enraged the Russian Tsar because it was his forces which had come to the rescue of the Austrian monarch during the 1848 rebellions. So when the Tsar learned of Bismarck's plans, he was more than happy to let them wipe the floor with their Austrian neighbors. The British remained the wild card and would continue to do so until 1914. We will have much more to say about this later, but Britain habitually took a spectator approach to the continent, as their naval supremacy and overseas empire led them to believe that they could remain neutral in mainland affairs. So they only really took a passing interest in German unification. Not to mention, the British had always seen the French as their traditional enemy, an animosity which went back centuries. So if someone else wanted to turn against the French, well, the British would say, have at them. With a unified Germany in the center of Europe, the balance of power set from the Congress of Vienna was severely altered, and European politics would never be the same. Bismarck would work tirelessly in securing Germany's place in Europe and become the dominant political figure through the rest of the 19th century. By 1890, however, Bismarck's career would come to an unsatisfactory end when he was dismissed by the new Kaiser Wilhelm II. This dismissal would mark a break in German foreign policy and lay some of the key groundwork for the outbreak of war in 1914. Next week, we'll tie everything together before launching into our discussion surrounding the First World War. Why, looking at the Congress of Vienna and German unification, all play an important role in later political decisions and how these events remain in the minds of decision makers from 1890 onwards. Thanks for sticking by and we'll see you next week.